Let's take a look at our scripture. We are in Song of Songs. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 6. Read along with me. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight, I sit in his shadow, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. The word of the Lord. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I told you guys um, the story of a merry-go-round at my former school. Um, and, uh, and, and just to refresh, because I know some of you prob- probably possibly weren't at that sermon, um, I, I was a principal at a school, and uh, we had this old guy who was our maintenance guy. His name was Roy. He was awesome. He could fix anything, but he never used uh, parts that came from factories, he always fabricated them. And so what that meant was by the time he was done with anything, it was better, it was faster, and it was way heavier than it ever started, right? And this merry-go-round, when he decided to fix it, it basically ended up being three tons of glorious goodness. I mean, this thing was solid steel. It was on um, incredible bearings with, with marine grease, and it took an entire schoolyard of kids to get the thing spinning. But once it did, it never stopped. And it would, in fact, just pick up speed. The kids loved it. It was the best, funnest, and most dangerous piece of playground equipment that ever existed. And um, I was incredibly irresponsible to allow the kids to continue to play on it, but it was fun. And, uh, and sometimes I was more interested in fun than safety. And so um, the kids loved it. I, Isaac came up to me, my son, my 16-year-old son came up to me two weeks ago after the sermon series and and because I said at the end of that I said that merry-go-round is is metaphorical for sex, it's metaphorical for your sexual relationship, and, that, and that's going to continue to be that metaphor for us this morning. He came up to me after the sermon series, and he said, "You have ruined the merry-go-round for me forever." <laughs> um, that's exactly what he said to me, and so I apologize if I've ruined it for you as well. If I have taken some fond, fond childhood memories of yours and um, I don't know tainted them in some way, but it really is a great metaphor for. Um, for our sexual relationships, right? When we, when we meet someone and, and we're attracted to them, um, there is, in a sense, a, a momentum, a movement to the relationship, right? The merry-go-round starts spinning. And, and, and at that stage of the relationship, it often seems to spin on its own. In fact, you, you almost seem helpless in some ways. There's, there's a mutual attraction, a mutual delight, a, a mutual enjoyment, and, and, and you just enjoy being together right? There's a little thrill that comes into your stomach as you just think about being with them, as you just think about seeing them, right? There's, there's a little bit of a thrill that comes with, with just knowing that they're waiting to see you. But you guys, there comes a point in every relationship where it stops being easy. That, that is reality. And you either figure out how to keep it spinning or you let it stop. And if you let it stop, the fire in the romance cools, and the erotic attraction dies. And, and worse yet, it, it may even start spinning backwards a little bit. Where, where you once really liked one another and were attracted to one another, you might actually start resenting one another. You might have a really hard time being in one another's presence because of hurt 
And so where you once were attracted, you're, you're now starting to repel and be repelled. Here's the thing, in your, in your marriage, in your relationship, you are constantly interacting with the merry-go-round at the center, right? You're, you're always, always either hitting it with positive pushes or hitting it with negative pushes. You are either increasing the momentum or you are slowing it down, stopping it, or making it go in reverse. Now, next week, we're going to spend some time talking about what to do about the negative pushes. How do we keep from, from pushing our relationship in the negative way? How do we deal with a spouse who seems determined to push it in a negative way? What happens when you're married to somebody and, 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 and for some reason or somehow there's an alienation that has come in and, and you just can't seem to bridge the gap? We're, we're going to be opening some of those tough topics next week. Specifically, how do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with pain? How do we deal with, with hurt feelings and growing resentment? How do we get the merry-go-round to spin again? We're going to be looking at that next week. And, and, um, and the reality is I know for some of you this morning, your marriage is you know, you're not really humming. I mean, things are in a rough spot. For some of you, you're not sure it's going to survive. And I'm going to encourage you this morning to listen because there is hope. And if there's hope, it's going to be found here. There are things that we're going to be talking about that will help you um, navigate these tricky waters. For those of you who've been thrown off the merry-go-round, those of you who have been divorced, those of you who, who um, you've gone through a divorce, or you're going through it right now, I'm going to encourage you to listen to these sermons with grace. Grace for yourself and grace for your ex. I'm not saying the things that I'm unpacking this morning to condemn you. And if you're sitting there just sitting under the weight of condemnation, you need to hear that that is not God's best for you. If you find yourself in a rough spot, if you find yourself in that difficult place, listen with grace for yourself and for your ex. Listen in grace to receive grace, and God will meet you there. So today, I want to talk to our married folk. I want to talk to those of you who are married or possibly engaged on your way to marriage. How do you make positive pushes so that you get the merry-go-round really spinning? Huh. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like fun, right? Not just like tolerable, not just like, yeah, we, we're not ready to kill each other, but I mean like humming, Right? Like, like a little bit of thrill, right? How do you, how do, you do that um, intentionally beyond just the initial stages of attraction, beyond just the initial stages of the thrill? I'm going to unpack a principle that I call closing the loop. Um, and it's a biblical principle. I didn't make this up. It's just something that, that is in the scripture that um, I believe is at the heart of how to really get things humming in your romance, how to really get things humming in, in, in areas of intimacy and, and, and sex and erotic love. Now, the poem we're looking at this morning um, is really a beautiful, incredible dance of intimacy. It is a powerful give and take of love and, and affection, of praise and respect. And it leads to an intense experience of, of intimate joy. Now, there's a subtlety to this poem as there is to all of this book, which means that we need to unpack it a little bit. We need to handle it carefully. It is, it is poetry that is foreign to us. It is written in a language that was not original to us, and it's using metaphors and, and, and allusions that are a little bit uh, distant to us. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking it so we can understand what exactly is going on. So take a look with me, okay? So we're in chapter 2, verse 1. 
as happens throughout this poetry, it is a series of, of, of almost choruses where there are statements going back and forth. And this poem begins with her speaking. And she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. All right, let's unpack a little bit. Um, when she says, I am the rose of Sharon, for us, the rose is in some ways the most romantic and beautiful of flowers. Now, you may disagree, right? You may have a different flower that's your favorite, but, but typically, what do you send on Valentine's Day? A bunch of carnations? No, you send a rose, right? Or a group of roses. I'm sorry if you sent carnations. Um, it's all right. It's all right. Maybe, maybe she loves them. Maybe he loves them, whatever. Um, but typically, the rose is the symbol in our culture of, of greatest value and beauty. The word here is actually not rose. In fact, when this poetry was written, there weren't even roses in this region. They weren't introduced into this region until much later. What, what she's saying is, is she's actually a, a flower that comes from a bulb. That's what the original word means. We don't know exactly which flower she's referring to, um, but more than likely, it's something like the asphodel. Now, the asphodel was a, a beautiful little white flower, but it grew in, in, in the fields in great quantity. And so you would look out into the fields and you would see um, these, these asphodel, right? Um, it was like in the second part where she says, I am a lily of the valleys. These lilies grew in, in huge quantity and, and they would cover the valley so that when you looked out at them, um, they just covered everything, right? So what she's saying is this. She's saying, look, I'm young and I know I have beauty. I know you're attracted to me. I know I have something you want, right? I know in this moment that, that you are attracted to me, but I am just a common flower. There's nothing remarkable about me. There is nothing that stands out or exceptionally beautiful about me. If, if you just look over in chapter one, there's a poem that has a very similar theme um, that plays with the same idea. We're looking at verses five and six in chapter one. In that poem, she starts out, she says, I am very dark, but lovely. All right, in this context, the Hebrew women, um, tans were not incredibly popular. I know today they are, right? My family is the whitest of the white, and, and my poor girls have had to live with that paleness and have actually learned to sport it and be proud of it, right? But in our culture, we tend to think of people who are tan as attractive. In this culture, it was people who were pale. Because if you were pale, it meant that you were able to, to avoid outside work. It meant that you were maybe a little bit more affluent and you didn't have to be out in the fields, right? So when she's saying, I, was, I am very dark but lovely, what she's saying is, look, I know my skin is dark. I know that I've been weathered, but I have a form of beauty, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, um, Kedar, they were known for... Um, they're very dark or black sheep. And so their tents were made from this black wool and, and their tents would dot the hillside and be very noticeable because they were black against the green hillside. So when she says, I'm like the tents of Kedar, or like the curtains of Solomon, she's saying, I know that I'm, I am dark skinned. Verse six, do not gaze on me because I'm dark. Don't stare at me. Don't look down on me because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me and they made me the keeper of the vineyards and my own vineyard I have not kept. So I haven't even been able to care for myself, my, my sexual identity, my sexual appeal, like I would have liked to, because in my situation, um, I had to work in the vineyards, right? The, the image of the brothers come in and, and, and they've kind of forced her out. This is, this is the point though. It's a poem with a similar theme and both poems express a certain insecurity. 
I haven't been able to protect my skin. I am not incredibly beautiful. I am not remarkable. I am not what I wish I were. Both are in expressing a kind of, of fear. I don't think I'm beautiful enough to capture your heart. I don't think I'm beautiful enough to keep you. I know you're attracted to me right now, but what happens when your appetite is fed? What happens when you get what you want? Are you going to leave me? There's an implied question here. When you see my flaws as clearly as I see my own flaws, why would you love me? Why would you keep loving me? Why me? There's, a, there's definitely a longing that is, is expressed here. See, I want this to be true. I want to be that person that you love, but I'm afraid it will be passing. I have anxiety that it might be transient. Bottom line is, um, I have discovered, not, not all, but most women struggle to feel beautiful. Most women, it doesn't really matter how beautiful they actually are. Everybody's around them is like, you're just stupid, man. You're incredibly beautiful. They have a hard time believing it. Most women have a very hard time believing that they're beautiful. Why? Because when they look at themselves, what do they see? All of their flaws. They know all of their flaws better than any person alive. And that's what fills their vision. They know where they don't have the right shape or they know where they don't have the right smoothness or they know where, where someone else may look better than them. And, and they look at the women around them and they see all of their strengths and all of their beauty and they look at themselves and they see all of their flaws. See, this, this insecurity flows from a much deeper source. It's an insecurity that actually flows because at our hearts we're broken. And what I mean by that is we were designed to live in the outpouring of God's love. We were designed to live in the presence of infinite love as the source of infinite delight because God himself created us in his own image to love us and delight in us. We were born sinners and as a result, we were born alienated from the God that we were designed to love and be loved by. And because we were born alienated from God, every single, single one of us was born insecure. There are deep needs that are not being met because we feel separate from love, separate from God. And this leads to deep insecurity and a fear of rejection, and it's translated into our human relationships. Because we feel deeply insecure, we anticipate rejection. Because we feel deeply insecure, we anticipate separation, that the one that we love will not always love us. Now, his response in verse 2 is beautiful. In verse 2, he responds and he says to her, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. He responds, you are a lily, right? You said you're a lily of the valley. You, you are a lily, but, but not one among a thousand. Not, not just one in this indiscriminate crowd that covers the entire valley. You are a lily among brambles. You are a lily among thorn bushes. You are the only one. You are one of a kind. You are not just beautiful. You are my understanding of beauty. 
When I look at you, I don't see one beautiful woman among many. I see one beautiful woman and nothing else. You are my measure of beauty. These are the very words she's longing to hear. And these are the very words that she's going to have an incredibly difficult time believing. So, man, there's some important stuff here that I want to unpack. Okay? (laughs) A little bit of relationship stuff here uh, as we consider what this means for us. First, um, good sex (laughs) isn't about sex. Okay? You need to get that into your head. Good sex is not about sex. Guys are focused on sex, and as a result, they they tend to um, really think sex is about sex, right? It's really just about the physical act. It's about the erotic enjoyment of the moment. And, And it's not that that stuff isn't important or pleasurable, but sex isn't about sex. It's about oneness. The gift of sex was given to us in the greater context of the gift of oneness. God has invited us to move into oneness with someone else specifically in the marriage relationship with our wives. And moving into oneness is more deeply satisfying and more powerfully intimate than sex by itself. It is, in fact, what inflames and empowers sex. True oneness is about intimacy. I've talked to a lot of guys who are um, in their marriages and they're kind of moaning and groaning a little bit about the lack of sex moaning and groaning a little bit about how she's become less responsive and less available, you know, as, as jobs have gotten busy and schedules have gotten crazy and kids have kind of come on the scene and, and, and there's all these demands and there's all this tiredness and all this busyness. And, and, and so I started asking the questions. Come to find out while, while they're moaning and groaning about the lack of sex, they really have no clue about how to foster intimacy. They have no clue how to move more deeply into fostering a sense of oneness and intimacy that actually leads to a responsiveness that, that, that provides a, cli- a setting for, for great sex. So guys, I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm going to give you something great. You probably won't see this on the cover of a magazine somewhere, but I'm going to tell you a woman's most, the two most powerful erotic zones, erogenous zones. Are you ready for this? Like, seriously, you ready? A woman's two most powerful erogenous zones. You ready? It's her head and her heart. (laughs) It's her head and her heart. You really want to get the merry-go-round spinning? You really want to get it humming? That's where you want to push. You want to connect with her head and her heart, her mind and her feelings. You're like, dude, kill me now. I've tried this, right? She's a mystery to me. I've tried, and and I just don't know how to get it. Here's the thing, you guys. This is what you need to understand. Your wife's deepest need is not for sex. Your wife's deepest need is to be loved and cherished. She needs to know that she is your treasure, that you cherish her, that you treasure her. Not just what she can do for you, not just how she makes you feel, but her, that that she is your treasure. She needs to know it, and she needs to feel it. She needs to know that you delight in her and that you find her attractive, that you find her beautiful, 
In fact, she needs to know that she is your measure of beauty, that she is your lily among brambles, that, that she's not first among many, or, or, or that she is in some way being compared to a bunch of others. She needs to know that she is one and only, right? So a couple quick tips to, to help you pursue this, right? First of all, if you're going to love her head and love her heart, you need to know her. And I mean this in the truest biblical sense. When it said Adam knew Eve, it talked about moving into oneness. It was sexual, but it was way more than sexual. It was, it was knowing her soul. You need to stop thinking you've already got her figured out. You need to stop thinking, well, I already know her strengths. I already know her weaknesses. I got this whole thing figured out. You need to study her. There are layers upon layers of beauty and complexity in your wife's heart. You need to study her. You need to learn about her. I mean, there are simple things like, like knowing your wife 101 is basic stuff. Like what's her favorite flower and what kind of movies does she like and what's her favorite candy and, and how does she give and receive love? right? What's her love language? What's the kind of thing that, that allows her to actually feel love? Do you know those things about your wife? I mean, it like intuitive for you. You know this right off the bat. If you don't know those, you haven't even started at 101 yet. Beyond that, what are her hopes and dreams for life? What are her deepest fears? Like you should potentially have a notebook, right? Like this is your lifelong class. I will study and know my wife. I will, I will, open her soul as she feels safe to open it to me and I will treasure what I find. You need to study your wife. Every woman is different. Hmm. Every woman is an enigma wrapped in a riddle, right? There is complexity upon complexity. And you're never going to get to a place where you got it all figured out. You need to know your wife. You need to study her. You need to know her like no one else knows her. So you can communicate to her in a way that she can hear. I'm going to encourage you. You need to invest in your, in your marriage. Come out this Friday as we do this, this marriage and intimacy and relationship and sex forum. Lead the way, man. Don't wait for her to invite you. Like, invite her. Like, like say, hey, I think this is a good way for us to invest in our marriage, right? Come on out. Join the conversation and invest in intimacy. You need to keep learning about her, which means you need to listen to her. You did this when you were dating. When you were dating, you only had eyes for her. You paid attention to her. You listened to her. You asked her really sexy questions like, How are you? How was your day? You seem anxious. What's going on in your heart? And then you did something crazy. You listened, right? I mean, seriously, guys, you need to listen. I mean, like literally, pause, stop talking, put away the phone and listen. Pay attention. See, what ends up happening is we walk in, we're like, oh, hey, how was your day? And we come over here and we're checking our phone and we're grabbing a snack. And we're, you know what we're communicating? Small talk, not really interested, got you figured out don't really care. And she's got these deep things going on in her heart and slowly what's going to happen is she's not going to trust you with them. Because worse than rejection is indifference. 
Some of you are thinking, well, I haven't rejected my wife. No, you've just become indifferent to her. You need to realize that's a hostile environment for intimacy. You can't be indifferent to the heart of your wife. You need to be passionately interested in who she is, what makes her tick. Listen. And when you listen, she'll talk. And when you listen, she'll open up her heart. And she will reveal herself to you. It will help you to know her and understand her, right? It's, it's, it's communicating to her in a thousand ways that say, I cherish you, I, I love you, I delight in you, I want to know you, you are beautiful to me, and I can't stop thinking about you. All the things that you used to do when you were wooing her and chasing her, you need to keep doing. So you need to listen to her, but you need to also talk. Guys, you need to open up your heart. <clears throat> you need to be willing to use your words. It is not good enough to show her you love her by simply serving her. Some of the guys are like that. They're fairly nonverbal. They're like, well, I serve her. I fix things. You know, I, I take care of things. I try to be thoughtful. Isn't that enough? It's really not. God gave you a mouth so that you could use it to speak, not just eat, right? You're, you're, you're supposed to share your words because in opening your mouth and sharing your words, you're opening your soul. She should know what your hopes are not just for the bedroom, right? If, if the only thing you're saying all day is, hey, baby, you're looking good, that's not incredibly romantic, right? You're just making her feel used. You need to open up your heart. You need to let her know who you are, what your fears are, what your hopes are, what your anxieties are, what your excitements are. You need to open these things up because she wants to know you. So you need to listen and you need to speak like with actual words, right? You need to have moments of quiet affection that are non-sexual. Like, like you should be touching her through the day in non-sexual ways. And not in ways that say, I want you and, and this is, I'm, because those kind of touches can very soon feel manipulative, right? She doesn't want to know first that you want her. She wants to know first that you delight in her. Your words, your touches, your presence should communicate to her a tenderness and a delight in her. You need to tell her that she is your treasure, that she is beautiful and that you delight in her. And I'm not being metaphorical here. You need to actually say those words. You need to learn to grow comfortable enough to be able to say to her, I treasure you. I delight in you. You are beautiful. Now, I'm going to tell you, she's probably not going to receive it incredibly well, especially if you haven't said it much. She's going to have a hard time hearing it. It, it may be uncomfortable for her to even listen to, but she needs to hear it. You need to show her every day that you love her. You need to tell her every day, right? You need to tell her that she's beautiful. You need to tell her that she is your treasure. Here's the thing, for her to believe it, you're not going to convince her with your words, but your words are part of the convincing. She needs to believe you believe it. Here's the thing, you're probably not going to convince her she's beautiful. I know very few women that are walking around like, I'm beautiful. You know, I mean, honestly, most women, when they look at themselves, are like, are you kidding me? He loves me, right? But he needs to be, she needs to be convinced that you're convinced 
right? She doesn't need to think she's beautiful. She needs to think you think she's beautiful, right? She needs to believe you. She needs to believe your heart, not just your words. And that means you need to listen, you need to talk, and you need to be real. You need to discipline your eyes. You need to discipline your heart so that she really is the measure of beauty for you. Guys, we are a visually stimulated creatures. We see things and we are easily simulated and easily distracted. We need to learn to discipline our eyes and discipline our hearts because being visually stimulated easily means that we also easily become dissatisfied. We easily start looking at things and and whether it's a car or a house or a woman, it's very easy for us to get distracted and to become discontent. Proverbs 5 is some great advice. It is a father speaking to his young son who has become married. I would encourage you to read all of Proverbs 5. We can't quote it all here, but here's a section of it that I thought was very relevant. He's saying to his son, drink water from your own cistern. Okay, he's speaking of sexual delight and relationship to his, his son and his wife. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? All right, what he's saying is metaphorically is, you know, it's like a guy who has property and he has a well on the property that provides fresh water and and takes care of all of his needs, right? How stupid would it be for this guy as he is traveling the road and passing other people's properties to all of a sudden get well lust? You know what I'm saying? Like he starts looking at other people's wells, right? He's got a perfectly good well that provides all of his needs at home and he's riding along and he's like, oh, look at the shape of that well. Hmm, that well's covered with stucco. Mine's not covered with stucco, right? Oh, that one sparkles in the sun. I wonder what he did to his well, right? How strange would it be if some guy starts lurking and and like from a distance looking at other guys' wells? I mean, that's just creepy stuff, right? And it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. He's like, man, you you got a well, man. God has blessed you with this young woman. Delight yourself in her. Discipline your heart. Don't be an idiot, Don't undercut your own ability to value the gift that God has given you. Don't be filling your vision with other guys' wells, right? Fill your vision with yours. Delight yourself in the wife of your youth. Delight yourself in her breasts, in her sexual affection, in her attention. I've seen a lot of young dudes, idiots. They're destroying their beautiful young brides. You know why? Because we are such a fitness crazed culture, right? Instagrams, everybody's got their six packs and everybody's thin and everybody's in great shape. And and I've seen these young couples come together and they're the epitome of beauty, right? They're looking better now than they will for the rest of their lives, right? She's beautiful. He's handsome. And every day he's like, you work out today? What you eating today, right? He's so obsessed with this fitness thing, so obsessed that she has the right body image 
that he's continually asking and pushing and plaguing. His dissatisfaction is coming out and communicating to her, you're not enough. And he's planting deep insecurity in her soul that will undermine their ability to find intimacy together. He is planting fear in her heart because she knows when she stops working out, she knows that when, when and if God blesses and she has a baby, she knows that as life comes and age comes and things start sagging, that he's no longer going to be satisfied. Dudes, don't undermine the gift that God has given you. Don't undercut the intimacy that you have by comparing your wife to others or to some idealistic vision of what you want her to look like or who you want her to be, you will destroy intimacy in your marriage and you will destroy your own sex life. Your wife needs to be your standard of beauty, not your perfect image of her, but her as she is. You need to love her, not just her body. You need to delight in her her soul, her personality, her body, everything about her. And here's the thing. The more you lead your heart to delight in her, the more beautiful she'll become to you. Do you understand that? The more you focus on things that lead you to dissatisfaction, the less satisfied you will be. The more you focus your delight on her and lead your heart and discipline your heart to delight in her, to know her, to focus on her, the more beautiful she will become to you. All right, so the man assures his bride that he finds her delightful, beautiful, not first among many, but one in a group of one. And her heart responds. He initiates with love into her insecurity, and her heart responds with delight. Take a look at verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she began by expressing some insecurity, expressing some fear. He initiated into that by assuring her that he delighted in her, that he found her beautiful. And she responds by wanting to be near him. When her insecurity is met with his delight, it triggers something in her that says, I want to be near you. You're safe. You're comforting. You're warm and inviting. She may not at this point believe that she's beautiful, but she believes he believes it. And that's good enough. There is a security in his delight in her. She responds, See, his delight in her inflames her delight in him. His delight in her inflames in her, her delight in him. She says, you are an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So amidst a a bunch of nondescript scrub trees, (laughs) you are a fruitful tree. You are a remarkable tree a tree that is fruitful, a tree that is delightful. And I delight to sit in your shade. I delight to eat your fruit. Now, of course, this is erotic poetry, and it's very possible that that this is a reference to sexual activity, that this is her responding sexually to his initiation. I don't think that's what's going on here, honestly. Um, the, the, 
the research I've done and looking into this, more than likely, she's being purely metaphorical here, but in a very powerful way. What she's saying is, you're the kind of man I like to sit in your shadow. Metaphorically, you are a man of stature. You are a man to be respected. You are a man that that I enjoy being near because you provide security and warmth and fruitfulness. And my respect for you feeds my delight in you. It is like a fruit that is fulfilling and delightful and sustaining. All right, ladies, some important stuff for you here. Talking about some principles that can apply to, to... you know, your marriage, how you can put some positive pushes on the merry-go-round and, and, and help the intimacy of your marriage heat up, help you pursue a greater experience of romance in your relationship with your husband. Your husband's deepest need is not sex. It may seem like it. It's not. His deepest need is to be loved and respected. He needs you to believe in Him. He needs you to see in Him His best. And He needs you to be a faithful partner who calls that best out. He needs you to be His biggest fan. The bottom line is He he needs you to respect Him. I tell women um, all the time as we're sitting down and doing counseling, Lauren and I often doing this together. And we'll say, look, your, your marriage, for it to thrive, for it to survive and then thrive, it needs you to respect your husband. You need to have a respect for your husband. And, and, and a lot of times the response I get back is, is, you know, I know that and I get that. The problem is I don't respect him. I don't find him respectable. I don't have a respect for him. He's lost that. Well, guess what? Things just got real. I don't know a woman yet who hasn't come to the place where she looked at her husband and said, you're not respectable. You know why? Because every husband is not respectable. Every single one of us is a mess. We're broken and we're sinful and we're selfish and we're growing. And in our mess, there's plenty for you to look at and say, that simply is not respectful. See, in the same way your husband has to discipline himself to see your beauty, you need to discipline yourself to see his strengths. No man is respectable when you get to know him well enough. When you see all of his weaknesses and insecurities and fears and failures. Here's the thing, wives, you are going to be a magnifying glass in your marriage. Every time your husband sits down at the breakfast table with you, what are you going to magnify? His weaknesses or his strengths? If you become a magnifying glass of his weaknesses, he will not be able to survive. You will destroy him because he will be crushed under the weight of his own inadequacies. He needs you to be a magnifying glass of his strengths, not his weaknesses. He needs you to respect him. And the bottom line is you need to respect him as well. If your marriage is going to thrive, you, you need to learn how to foster respect for him in your heart. 
not just in your words, not just in your behavior. It's got to be real, right? So I'm going to a little counsel to you, ladies. Don't dwell on your husband's failures. Don't, don't sit around in all your spare moments and think about how he sucks, about how he disappointed you or how he missed an opportunity to serve you, or didn't love you well, or said a rude or selfish word. Don't let that become the focus of your attention. Don't dwell on his failures. In your conversations that you're having in your head, because I know you're having them 24 hours a day with yourself, don't be rehearsing all the bad things he's done. Don't talk about what an ass he is or how selfish he is or what a jerk he is. Don't continually reinforce the image of his failure to yourself. You need to have a different conversation with yourself. I'm not saying an unrealistic conversation. I'm not saying a a conversation that doesn't take into account areas where he needs to grow and change and maybe some hard conversations you need to have with him. But you need to have conversations that are rooted in grace and moving in respect. Rooted in grace, undeserved favor, moving in respect that basically says, I will choose to focus on what is good. I will choose to focus on what is strong while we address what is weak. I'll choose to focus on what is healthy while we, while we work on and address areas that are not. I will give respect. So in the words that you're speaking in your head and the words that you're speaking out of your mouth, when you're speaking with your friends, How much time do you spend running your husband down? Talking about how he failed you or talking about how he let you down or talking about how he missed opportunities or talking about when you're talking to your mom, your your intimate friends. Is his reputation safe with you? Do you treasure him enough that you want them to have a positive impression of him? Or do you just run him down? Do you use it as an opportunity to vent? And guess what's happening? When you're venting with your words, you're reinforcing those images in your heart. Those words not only express your heart, they shape your heart. And so as you're venting about your husband, you are actually shaping your attitude towards your husband. As you are tearing him down, you are are belittling him in your heart and you will have a harder and harder time respecting him. You need to discipline your thoughts. You need to discipline your words. You need to be someone that he is safe with. His reputation, his name, his character. That when he shows up in a room where where, where he knows you've had intimate, private conversations with those people, he's not wondering, do they know about my failure? Do they know about what I said or what a jerk I was? Or do they know... Because if that becomes an unsafe environment, it'll trigger all the insecurities and fears of his heart. It will cause him to pull away. It will destroy the intimacy of your home. Listen to me. A woman who who is using her words to tear down her husband is like a woman who doesn't like the paint on the siding of her house. So she takes a hammer outside and starts hitting it. You're destroying the very thing that you say you want to save. So don't speak negatively about him. Don't, Don't use sarcasm as a form of communication. That's a very immature form of communication and usually is a way of expressing passive aggressiveness instead of healthy, in a healthy way saying, I have a hurt that I need to talk about with you. Instead, you say, late again. And instead of saying, I feel disrespected and unsafe in this moment, you say, well, where were you? Didn't think about me this time, did you? We use sarcasm and passive aggressiveness to attack And when we attack, we hurt. And when we hurt, we alienate. 
We're going to talk more about that side of it next week. But for now, I'm saying use your words in a positive way, right? To express grace, to give the gift of respect. If your husband isn't very respectable to you right now, in grace, give him the gift of respect. In the same way, God has given you the gift of love in Christ. Choose to respect him. Choose to focus on his positive aspects. Choose to say words that build him up and strengthen him. Build them up in public, build them up in private, in front of people you care about, your girlfriends, your mom, and your kids. Your words shape your children's understanding and impression of your husband, their father. Do you want your kids to reflect your resentment or grow strong in love? Your husband has a lot of flaws, but the place to air those things is not in front of your kids. Build him up. Talk about his strengths. Give him the gift of respect. Choose to focus on what is good and healthy, not what needs to be worked on and grown in grace. And in doing so, listen, you're going to shape your heart and make it easier to respect him, but you're also going to create an environment that invites him to growth. Instead of, see, defensiveness is a posture of, of, of stagnation. When we get defensive, we pull back. And when we pull back, we're no longer growing. We're no longer maturing, right? When you create an environment of love and respect, you're inviting him to come out with his vulnerability, with his weaknesses, with his flaws. He has them, but it allows him to come out and grow through them. And when you become his support, when you become his fan, when you respect him and give him the gift of respect, you empower him in beautiful ways. And listen to me, he will become more respectful than you can imagine as he grows. And he'll call things out of your heart you didn't know could be called out. We're going to talk more about that aspect next week as we move into the challenging piece of of just the reality of of conflict and, and working through that. But at this point, let's just focus on this. Give respect as a gift. You'll change your heart in beautiful ways. You're going to change his heart in beautiful ways. And that's love, you guys. That's agape love. That's God's love, deep and powerful love, love that moves not as a reaction, but as a choice. Not in response to you're making me feel good, but as a choice, this is um, an expression of love. The same kind of love God has given me in Christ, I now give to you. You guys, this is what I call closing the loop. As we look at this poem, what we see is him delighting in her, cherishing her, her delighting in him and respecting him. Neither one is perfect, but they're both yielded to the other. And they're in a posture of generosity instead of competitiveness. They're in a posture of generosity instead of critique. They are feeding the needs of others instead of claiming and fighting for their own needs to be fed. And there is an electricity at the heart of this relationship. And in fact, at the heart of every marriage, there's electricity, but the electricity has to have somewhere to go for it to be powerful. You can have an electrical line hanging from a telephone pole, not connected to the house. It doesn't do any good. You got to close the loop. There's got to be a circuit for the electricity to travel through to actually light the thing up. And the better the loop is closed, the more power can flow through it. The reality is I've found most people have only experienced the thrill of static electricity little pops here and there. And they don't know how to nurture it and foster it. They don't know how to make it stronger. Sadly, most people, honestly, their best sex is already done. 
Like, it's gone. That's sad, guys. That's sad, right? The reality is your sexual intimacy should be growing as you grow together. It should become more powerful, more delightful. But you need to close the loop. You need to keep investing in your relationship and, and um, investing in, in, in the love and the respect that allows attraction, affection, and erotic love to flow freely. See, the more you move into oneness, the more you close that loop, the more powerful the erotic love in your relationship can become. See, that's what's happening to our couple in the poem. I mean, right? Take a look, see what happens. Verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. We, we have this image now of him taking her hand and, and leading her into the, the banqueting house. Literally, banqueting house means house of wine. <laughs> All right. We've already seen that, that wine is symbolic in these poems of the intoxicating effects of erotic love, right? That, that, that we can get buzzed, right? On our attraction for one another. We can get buzzed in our erotic, that, 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 magnetic, electric attraction, right? And what he's doing now is he's saying, look, we're buzzing, but we're going to go get our party on, right? We're going to the house of wine. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to go to this place and we're basically going to get hammered. And in this place, his banner over me is love. We talked about this image last week, right? There's a sense in which she's conquered in a beautiful way, not not patriarchally. She's, she's willingly yielding herself to him. And the real victory here is not sex. The real victory here is love. Real, deep, powerful, lasting love experienced in and expressed through sex. Verse 5, sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I am sick with love. Um, they've been partying pretty hard. Okay, I mean, at this point in the poem, essentially what she's saying is, I'm exhausted. That phrase, sick with love, literally means like I am physically ill. <laughs> I'm, I'm toast. I need some raisins and apples here, right? I don't think that's metaphorical for aphrodisiacs. And she's, she's like, I need sustenance, okay? Let's let them do food. Be good, good idea. Feed me, right? I need food. I need to eat. I'm exhausted. <laughs> They closed the loop and the result was explosive intimacy. And in verse 8, we move into the calm after the storm. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. It is this beautiful image of two exhausted bodies resting in mutual delight. The fire of the erotic moment has passed, but the fire of deep love still burns. There is a oneness that is being reinforced and celebrated that is so much better than just sex. They now rest in that deep current of of God's love shared together in covenant oneness. Next week, you guys, we're going to look at the flip side of this week because it's not enough to know the right things to do. You need to know the wrong things that get in the way of the right things. And we need to take a look at at how we avoid those negative pushes and and how we deal with the real challenges of being broken people in in a broken relationship trying to create a whole thing, right? So how do you deal with conflict, loneliness, anger, feelings of betrayal? How do you, as a broken, sinful person, love a broken, sinful person like this so that you foster something beautiful? That's where we're going next week. So make sure you come back to join us. As we move into a time of response, 
I'm going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and, and um, let God speak to you. Um, I trust that wherever you are, that there's been something here to be encouraging um, to you. If you're a visitor with us, I want to let you know we have worship response cards in our bulletin. We would love for you to fill those out and drop them in the response boxes uh, to let us know you were here. If you have prayer requests, put those on there. We will pray with you and for you um, and would love to, to come alongside you in, in whatever it is that, that God's working on um, with you. All right, some, some response questions to kind of lead your thoughts as we go into a, a time of response. First of all, men, how are you doing delighting in and communicating your delight for your wife? Notice the order. How are you doing, first of all, delighting in her? And then how are you doing communicating that delight? That's the order, of course, that has to take place, but those are not mutually exclusive things. As we express our delight, we shape our heart to delight, right? So how are you doing with that? I mean, really, just take an honest evaluation. If you're not sure, be really brave and ask your wife. That can be a scary but intimate conversation. Do you feel cherished by me? Do you feel treasured by me? Be ready, man. (laughs) Because if you're being honest and open, she may say some things you're not ready or or necessarily want to hear, but will be good to hear. Because repentance and confession um, are the heart of change. And change is is ultimately the pathway to oneness, right? We need to set aside our selfishness and, and move into love and delight. Women, how are you doing respecting and building respect for your husbands? Are you fostering a thought pattern that allows you to focus on his strengths instead of his weaknesses? Do your conversations reflect a commitment to respect him instead of tear him down? Are you seeking to honor him even if he's not honorable? Uh, this is where it's real. Are you seeking to, to, to give him the gift of respect even if he doesn't deserve it, knowing that in giving him that gift of respect, you're actually doing something beautiful to your own heart even if he doesn't receive it? But how are you fostering respect and, and um, building your husband up? If you're not sure, ask him. And if he doesn't give you a good answer, ask him again, because men tend to be very slow with their words to actually open up and express their hearts, okay? So ask him repeatedly. But do it without defensiveness, right? Because if you're coming to the table asking defensively, um, you, you're undercutting the ability for him to be honest, right? Ask for real. Do, it, do you feel respected by me? Do you feel like... I lift you up and honor you? Do you feel safe when I'm talking to my friends? Ask him and work through it. What steps can you take this week to close the loop? What gift of respect? What what gift of love? What, What action can you take that's going to help build intimacy instead of tear it down, to put a push on that merry go round? What can you do this week that will express love, delight, intimacy, and love. Pray about it. Your marriage is incredibly important to you, and it's incredibly important to God. And He's glorified as you learn to move more deeply into oneness. He is glorified as you discover more of the gift of oneness that He has planted in that relationship. So dig deep. Move in prayer. Move in humility. And let God bless. Let me pray for us. We'll go into time of response. Father God, we thank you that you are a good and loving God. We thank you that you meet us in our need. You don't judge us for our lack because you judged Christ in our place. And you give us grace. 
We thank you that we are loved by you. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider our relationships, we will consider how we can love, not based on how people make us feel or what reward we get out of it, but how we can love because we're loved, how we can invest into the intimacy and oneness of our our marriage relationships as an expression of and a celebration of the fact that, that we're loved by an infinite God and delighted in by an infinite God who has paid the price to make us infinitely beautiful, infinitely respectful. Help us, Lord, to discover more of who you are as we move more deeply into discovering more of who we are and who our spouses are. I pray for my friends that are in really bad spots in their marriages. I pray for my friends whose marriages have ended. And I pray, Lord, that you will meet them in grace, that you will call them to the new beginning of grace, that you will um, invite them not into the condemnation of the past, but into your delight in the presence that you have a glorious, redemptive plan for them. That they might be freed from resentment. That they might be freed from from the, the harsh and difficult realities that have hurt them and shaped them in the past and will be freed to rest in your goodness and your love in the present. Pray for our singles, Lord, that they would be people who are wise with their sexuality, not awakening erotic love before its time. That they would be um, moving forward in great faith and great hope, knowing, Lord, that you're the giver of good gifts. Father, bless us that we might be a people who love you in our relationships with one another. 